You're listening to an IOE podcast. Powered by UCL Minds. This is Research for the Real World. Conversations with researchers about the paths they've taken to shape our everyday lives. For the real world, conversations with researchers about the paths they've taken to help shape everyday lives. Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Eathwaite, and I'm a Principal Research Fellow at the UCL Centre for Education Policy and Equalising Opportunities, also known as CPO. And we are based in the IOE, UCL's Faculty of Education and Society. In this season of Research for the Real World, we're discussing how the cost of living crisis and food insecurity is affecting children and young people's life chances specifically food banks and schools and the impact on children's learning. And in today's episode, we're welcoming back Dr. Jake Anders. Jake is an Associate Professor of Quantitative Social Science and is the CPO Deputy Director. Jake's research focuses on the causes and consequences of educational inequality and the evaluation of policies and programmes aimed at reducing them. He has worked with multiple UK government departments, such as working with the Department for Business, Innovation and Skills, on the transition from education into work, as well as with the Education Endowment Foundation and other third sector organisations, including the West London Zone, which, if I remember rightly, was what he shared with us on a previous podcast episode. He is also a principal investigator on the COVID Social Mobility and Opportunities Study, also known as COSMO, which is a collaboration with the Sutton Trust and is funded by the Economic and Social Research Council. So, without further ado, welcome back, Jake. Hi, thanks for having me back. Great. So we know that you've been on the podcast before, but can you remind us about how you became interested in educational research? Sure. So I first became involved in and sort of interested in educational inequalities as an undergraduate student. In fact, in getting involved in looking at uh, getting involved in uh, the university I went to's access and outreach programmes and kind of became interested in, do these work? Are these reaching the people we want them to? Are they making the difference that we want them to from an educational inequality point of view? And it was that interest that motivated the PhD research that I went on to do after that time. And that kind of continued to to open out into wider areas of research on educational inequalities and and evaluations that, yeah, as you've already said, describe my kind of interests quite broadly. That's great. So you are principal investigator on the COSMO study, but how did that study come to be? I know there's maybe there's a hint in terms of COVID in the title, but could you just tell us a little bit more about your journey with COSMO, kind of highs and lows that you've experienced with this study? Absolutely. So yes, as you say, COSMO was a project that came very much out of the COVID-19 pandemic. It was initially funded by uh, UKRI as part of its COVID rapid response grants. It was an idea that we took to them, we meaning, as you say, colleagues at CPO 
at the UCL Centre for Longitudinal Studies with all their expertise on on cohort studies previously, which I'm sure have been talked about on on this podcast. I know they've been talked about on this podcast. And Sutton Trust, who are leading think and uh, action organisation, looking at the impacts of education on inequalities and and sort of the you know the the policy really policy focused end of that and and could see like we could the the big challenges coming down the track from the disruption that was being faced by covid but also the fact that this was being felt very differently by those from different backgrounds and that there was a, a real need to be collecting high quality and representative data from people across the country to help describe that picture, but also lay the groundwork and the framework for us to continue following those young people in subsequent years. So Cosmo was designed as a a longitudinal cohort study from the outset, reaching out to uh, young people, reaching out to more than 25,000 people uh, across young people across England in the first instance to invite them to be part of this you can't obviously force anyone to be part of this but we were it was important to reach out to a representative sample or as representative possible a sample based on administrative data that was kindly shared with us by the, the Department of Education with whom we also worked on this study as partners to, to support what we were doing and it would be useful for them to know about from the research that we were, were doing and getting in touch and successfully recruiting over 13,000 young people from, as I say, all across England who were those who were in year 10 at the onset of the pandemic. So that meant they were coming towards the end of their period of education. There wasn't going to be, you know, it's a really key time in their education to be disrupted. There wasn't necessarily going to be much time for them to catch back up again. And also, they had those exams coming down the track very quickly. And then, as we know, they were then a year group they were in year 11 in a year in which the exams, the GCSEs that they would normally have sat in that year were replaced with teacher assessed grades. And they then proceeded on to the next stage of education based entirely on those teacher assessed grades rather than exam based grades. So this was all those sort of constellation of, of things about, you know, different aspects of that came together to mean this was, you know, a year group that was really crucial to understand the experiences of and as I say crucially how that was different for different group and and then continue to to follow them up so we were interviewed for them for the first time when they were in year 12 or you know an equivalent of that and then most recently last uh, academic year when they were in year 13 and then very recently they took their A-levels or other qualifications or whatever they were doing then just this summer and some have now started in universities, some have now started in, in jobs, and we hope to be able to follow them up again in future. But as with all studies, that's very much funding dependent, and uh, we're waiting for kind of future opportunities to be able to, to take that forward and, and hopefully continue that tracking of these young people's lives and where that disruption has affected the pathways that they're now on. That sounds a mammoth undertaking, Jake, but an incredibly rewarding one. And, you know, maybe I'm a little bit biased because we are based in the same research centre, but you've had such 
great coverage of the many findings that you've had from Cosmo. But as part of that, could you just, you did mention that you had a representative sample. Could you just, for some of the listeners who might not necessarily be aware of what that means from a methodological point of view, could you just kind of explain a little bit more about that, particularly in terms of like what it might mean for children or young people from more underrepresented groups of things like, you know, did you have an overrepresentation of ethnic minority children, for example, in your sample to make sure that, you know, you were kind of capturing these children's different voices in your study. Absolutely. So yeah, I don't know about mammoth task, but that was almost certainly a mammoth answer, (laughs) wasn't it? And this will have danger of being one as well. So do tell me I need to say less if I need to say less. But yes, so as I say, the it's crucial to us that as far as possible, anyway, Cosmo tries to achieve something that is a, a sample as representative as possible of of the population that we're trying to understand, that population of those who were in year 10 at the onset of the pandemic during COVID. And we know from previous studies and other attempts to, to, to contact young people to take part in the surveys that different groups are more or less likely to take part. Some groups also are just larger or smaller in the population and given the aim of the study to be able to look at inequalities between groups we don't just want to describe kind of the average picture but we want people to be able to we want to ourselves be able to look at things but also Cosmo is a a data resource available for 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 researchers so we want other people as, as well to be able to look at inequalities between different groups compare the experiences of of different groups and that means that some of those smaller groups you know they they may well be very important groups with whom we want to to compare one another for example some minority ethnic groups you know just if we took their expected numbers in the population that might be quite a small number when you sort of scale it down to the size of our study which means when you then try and compare them with with another group you end up with you know, having a lot of uncertainty in your findings and and people being quite unsatisfied about, you know, we want to be able to say things about different groups and and help to explain how things were different for for those from, from certain groups and backgrounds. So we made quite a sort of, with our fieldwork partners who helped support to, to deliver the study, quite a kind of complex plan of selecting those who would be invited to take part. So as you mentioned in in your question, that included, for example, oversampling, so increasing the probability, increasing the the proportion of of young people from uh, minority ethnic groups who were invited to take part, increasing probability of those who are in schools with higher proportions of those eligible for free school meals to take part. And sort of all of that kind of can get plugged in together, (laughs) as it were, along with the actual differences in rates of response that do happen. Because for for all that we try and reach everyone, and, you know, we put a fair amount of effort into trying to reach everyone, everyone who we contacted, we contacted multiple times, there was targeted face-to-face field follow-up, and people came and sort of said, please, will you take part? No one's story is quite the same. We do want to everyone uh, we invite to take part but ultimately it's an individual's decision whether they want to take part in this study or not and you know 
absolutely their right to to say no clearly ethically and so we knew some things about them from that kind of that original population data that I mentioned from from the department for for education which means what we can do is adjust for both those deliberate distortions in the proportions of different groups who are in there but also kind of ones driven by non-response differential non-response and use a, a technique called weighting to try and change the importance of particular observations in there so that at the kind of aggregate level you end up with analyses that are as close as we can make them to being representative of as if we would analyzing data from everyone in you know uh, in in our our target population not just those who happen to take part as it were yeah it's so important to you know take that approach particularly when you are asking or addressing some of these kind of like bigger policy issues and it's the the kind of the long-term impact that you're trying to achieve with this work so yeah great work exactly I mean I think it's it's very important and one of the reasons one of the motivations for doing this this study and, and trying to make sure that we we did a study that really took this as seriously as as we felt we could was there was quite a lot of research during COVID which was just sort of carried out very understandably under the circumstances on opportunistic samples right samples of people that people happen to have for other studies or other purposes but if they haven't been designed to be representative of the population it may give us a distorted picture of the kind of differences between different groups or indeed the the overall levels of concerns or you know difficulties that are being faced in in the group because if for example you have a highly engaged sample that you've recruited for some you know particular psychological research study where you needed really highly engaged respondents and it didn't matter so much if it was representative for of the population as a whole then that might mean that you get fewer people from harder to reach groups who are going to be different from those in easier to reach groups and therefore you you may downplay problems or highlight different problems. So with this accurate picture that you have developed through your sampling techniques that you've just described, could you tell us what the data from Cosmos study has been telling us about some of the issues to do with the cost of living crisis as well as financial and food insecurity for young people? Yeah, so challenges around cost of living crisis are obviously something that's emerged kind of in the the slightly later stages of of the pandemic, as it were. But also, there were significant concerns in the early stages of the the pandemic about food poverty, sort of not directly from kind of cost of living increases, but from issues such as young people no longer having access to free school meals that they would normally expect to receive at school. People whose parents were furloughed, you know, did take a a hit to earnings, 20% hit to earnings typically, you know, if, if their employer just passed along what the the government provided in support, not topping it back up to to, to the 4%. So that could kind of cause a situation. And, you know, a bunch of different reasons why, you know, a large number of of households. So in our uh, analysis and our statistics, 39% of, of households reported that they had a worse financial situation than the situation that they were in before the pandemic. But again, you have to highlight these inequalities, right? These these were different in different places. 16% actually reported that their finances had improved, but it was those 
who had, you know, in a, in a more difficult financial situation before the pandemic, who were significantly more likely to have seen a worsening financial situation. They were, you know, I, I suspect more likely to be in more precarious employment situations uh, already. And things like that meant that, you know, they're jobs may have been harder to switch to working from home, you know, more kind of middle class, higher occupational status jobs were more likely to just switch to working from home. And in that situation, you know, for, for some people, the pandemic actually kind of left them in a, a, a better financial situation, they reduced their outgoings, but without a much of a situation for their their incomings. But obviously, we are going to be much more concerned about those who's had a a worse financial situation that almost 40% who said that they did have a, a worse financial situation and particularly concerningly some in our sample who highlighted that there were challenges around food poverty uh, as a result of pressures of the, the pandemic. One in 10 young people in the survey reported living in, in households which based on the range of measures we asked about, would be classified as food insecure, with kind of parents potentially running out of food or skipping meals in order to ensure their, their child continued to, to get a meal during that time. And perhaps particularly worrying as a sort of sort of longer term indicator of this, it wasn't just households where it was those who were eligible for free school meals. And, you know, maybe it was partly that direct loss or, or challenge, in particularly in early days of, of accessing free school meals that did this. The majority of the households that where young people reported going hungry during that period were not eligible for free school meals. And over a third of young people whose house whose households reported using food banks were similarly not free school meal eligible either. Wow, so it does it does paint quite a bleak picture. So you've talked a lot about the sort of the, what the statistics look like in terms of who's experiencing reduced finances and food insecurity. But could you tell us a little bit more about what food insecurity actually looks like? Like how did you ask the questions and what does that kind of mean for somebody that is experiencing these problems? So we asked kind of a, a range of, of questions to both parents and young people who uh, took part in in the survey to try and understand the picture in terms of their their food insecurity and their use of food banks during and after and and more more recent than sort of you know lockdown periods so yeah our main measures of understanding food poverty during the pandemic was based on asking parents who took part in in the survey about a, a set of questions that have been have been used previously to try and understand kind of food poverty there are a kind of recognized measure of this and ask about issues such as having to skip uh, a meal because of a lack of money or other resources to get food eating less than they kind of felt they should be eating ran out of food were hungry because did not eat because there was not enough money or other resources for food and kind of in its most extreme went without eating for a a whole day because of a lack of of money or other resources. We also asked information about whether this affected just the adults in the household, just the children or, or everyone, where we kind of anticipated it's likely that parents would try and shield their children from 
from these uh, uh, effects, obviously, and and they would be you know only in more extreme cases it would be more likely to to affect everyone. And as I mentioned, also we asked questions about pandemic use of banks and then sort of the, the continuation of that by the time we were asking our questions, uh, which was after some of the uh, immediate lockdown periods, but still during some of the some of the restrictions. But you know, once once uh, lockdowns were uh, were over, in order to understand whether that was something that was easing, and in particular, as I say, you know, maybe easing for some people more than others. But then we have more recently collected uh, newer data, which aren't out yet, but will have been released by the time of this podcast going out, asking more recently, and as really the cost of living crisis pressures have, have started to build up more, whether this is something that you know, now maybe is affecting other people that it wasn't during the pandemic and, you know, potentially for, for different reasons as, than, than it was for people who it was affecting during the pandemic. That's really interesting. And it'll be, uh, it'll be interesting to see the, the results when they are published. Um, so I definitely keep an eye out for those on the Cosmo website, which hopefully we can include in the podcast notes as well. So you've obviously talked about the kind of the prevalence of these kinds of issues and what it means to be food insecure but what's the what's also the impact of the experiences of food insecurity on children and young people's education or other outcomes have you got any insights from that perspective from the cosmos study so one of the things i think we found most worrying about these issues of food insecurity during the pandemic was the impacts they seem to be having on things that we would expect to carry on post-pandemic or, or continue to have a, an impact, to embed that impact after the pandemic. Obviously, food insecurity, food shortage is not something that can ever be a good thing to be happening. But if it were a purely transient thing, that would at least be better than it being something that has a lingering effect but unfortunately like the analysis we did showed effects that made us concerned about that sort of becoming embedded as as i say pupils in families who reported using food banks during the pandemic received lower gcse grades so works out on kind of average almost half a grade per subject in in those gcse grades even when we try and compare those who have similar grades beforehand so similar profiles of of prior attainment so it's not just you know these are different groups of of people but when we try and compare people who were on similar academic trajectories beforehand if we compare those who who had to use a food bank during the pandemic with those who who didn't there was that difference in those GCSE grades it's not as big as kind of you know long-term indicators of disadvantage you know parental education family income parental occupational status we know predict differences in in GCSE attainment unfortunately there are those inequalities there and we're not saying these are as as big as that but if kind of short-term shocks and and challenges with food bank use and food insecurity underpins that rather than obviously the the use itself having that effect potentially on on academic attainment during that that time perhaps because it predicted lower engagement with schoolwork which was then picked up on by teachers assigning those teacher assessed grades as we as we mentioned you know they they can only assign those grades based on the performance they were seeing the engagement they were seeing during the run-up to the assignment of those grades then those are then fixed right they are 
something that has has embedded and and can potentially have a a continuing effect on on those young people's life chances, even if, as it were, the immediate circumstances that led to that food insecurity is is a challenge. Another way in which we we saw that was among around the issue of psychological distress and kind of challenges with with mental health. Those who were using food banks, who started using food banks during the pandemic, uh, were more likely to report in in a way that suggested they were at at high risk of psychological distress, which and and that was sort of even even higher than those who were kind of longer term users of of food banks, but perhaps kind of indicating impacts of short-term financial shocks and, and finding yourself in a, a kind of unfamiliar situation and in needing to to rely on that kind of support in a way that kind of, again, has the potential to, to become embedded and continue to be a risk factor for these young people's life chances going forward. So you also said earlier on that there were um, children and young people in the Cosmo sample that were experiencing food insecurity that weren't previously eligible for free school meals. And so that's got me wondering, from your perspective, what do you think this means for free school meals eligibility? And is there anything that we could maybe doing more for these children as a way to support them with their education and their mental health? And, you know, the very things that you were just describing about trying to avoid kind of entrenched inequalities. I think one thing that we have very kind of firmly suggested as as a result of of these is the fact that there are so many who are food insecure but wouldn't be considered eligible for free school meals under current rules suggests the eligibility criteria like where the line is drawn at the moment are in urgent need of of review it's if if there's a group of people who are just outside that threshold you know they're they're above that threshold but clearly are struggling to to make ends meet then that means they're in some ways worse off than those who are you know below that threshold or certainly those who are just below that threshold and therefore are getting a bunch of that support because they are then entitled to it below that cut off that's going to be a problem wherever you set that threshold to a certain extent but you know just the the rates of those saying they're using food banks or are otherwise in a situation where there's food insecurity who are outside that threshold really suggests where we're drawing that line at the moment is is not in the right place. I'm sort of not sure off the top of my head whether that's those thresholds haven't moved enough as wages and prices have, have changed with, you know, particularly recently with inflation, right? The costs of things going up suggest that you you should be raising that threshold as well because more of more, more people are then in the group you know below that should then be in that group below that threshold who need the support to to get it with wages and prices going up you know some people would even be you would expect people to be kind of falling out because they they're getting pay rises and that takes them out of that group but they're not really any better off necessarily if that pay rise is still lower than the amount that their shopping bill has gone up and that's something that you know very clearly needs to be looked at and 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 that is a a reason that has been 
given and underpinned, for example, in London, the implementation by the, the Mayor of London for this temporary trial period of universal primary free school meals. So rather than having that threshold, you just say, well, we're just going to provide it to everyone, regardless of uh, the level uh, that their, their parents are, are at. And obviously that costs quite a lot more and is potentially less targeted than making sure that the money you're spending is on those who have the lowest levels of of income and and potentially need you know if we could spend all of the money on a smaller group of people we could afford to give more money to to each one of them and so yeah universal provision like that can mean you end up you know paying for paying for the lunches of those who you know don't necessarily need it but there have been suggestions and it's something that is being looked at with this rollout in in London that I mentioned that kind of there are other offsetting benefits of that right there there can be issues of stigma around people claiming for for free school meals there are ways increasingly of of managing that but there may still be kind of concerns about that and I think it ends up being quite a sort of question of what happens in practice. I don't think we completely know what happens in, in practice when you when you try and take that that stigma away in different contexts and different environments in a way that this is, again, providing an opportunity to, to test. Great. Thanks so much, Jake, for explaining all of these different issues in you know a really engaging and understandable way. But before we go, could you tell us a little bit more about what's next for you in terms of this line of work and research? Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, probably by the time this podcast uh, comes out, there will be some new findings from Cosmo. I've I've mentioned that it's a, a longitudinal cohort study. What I've been talking about today are our findings from from Wave One, but earlier this year we we finished collecting findings from Wave Two. And they will be made available. The data will be made available to the research community to use for for their own projects, uh, which we're very excited about. We we want other people to come in and use this as a, a resource to understand all manners of educational difference and inequalities and you know other things about this cohort. Not even necessarily in the context of them being a post-COVID cohort, but um, you know perhaps it's one of the most obvious ways in which it it stands out. We will also be uh, shining a light on on some new findings, including around young people's mental and physical health, based on on that. So I hope people will will look out for for that. Then at the very end of this year, we are going to be doing a quick check-in with these young people, as many of them as, as possible, to just ask in a really rapid fire kind of way, where are you now? Basically, what are you doing right now? Because as I mentioned earlier, some of them will be at university now, some of them will be in jobs, some of them will be doing other things. And we just want to sort of take a quick pulse check and understand where they are, what are they doing, kind of because... That's a key outcome <laughs> for, for a first thing, you know, in terms of, you know, are, are they all where they were hoping and aspiring to be? When we asked them uh, a couple of years ago, where do you think you'll be in two years time? We can see how that all matches up. But also as a precursor to, to hopefully coming back in a, a bit more of a, you know, a, a, a full blooded, full blooded way like we did in wave one and, and wave two, hopefully in, in a year or two's time. And Uh, As with all research projects, that will depend on getting further funding in order to do that. Um, But that's something we're working on right now. 
and I hope means that that we will will be back and we'll have more things to talk about uh, about these young people and what they've gone on to do next. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jake. And yeah, best of luck with projects moving forwards. Again, maybe I'm biased, but it does sound super valuable, you know, particularly as you do have such an accurate snapshot of such a large group of children and young people during such a key part of their development and life as they as they move from COVID and into the beyond. So thanks so much for revisiting your career and sharing another area of your research with us. And yeah, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks again for having me. You can follow Jake on X, formerly known as Twitter, at, at Jake Anders. That's J-A-K-E-A-N-D-E-R-S to learn more about his research. Some of what we've covered today is also available in the episode notes. If you've enjoyed this episode, we have an archive of 20 past seasons. Just search IOE Podcast from wherever you get your podcasts from. And there you'll find the episodes of Research for the Real World, as well as more podcasts from the IOE. And a quick favour before I go, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we'd really appreciate it if you could give the IOE Podcast a rating. Five stars would be nice if you're enjoying the show. And this will help us to reach more people who are interested in hearing about such important work. I'm Laura, and thank you for listening. Research for the Real World is produced by IOE Marketing and Communications and IOE Research Development. The theme music was created by Rob Cochran. Tatiana Sotero-Diaz is the series advisor. Amy Leibowitz is the series producer. And Jason Ilagan is the executive producer of the IOE podcast. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast. 